Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hey there, this is Adam Kogi, and today we will be talking about H-E-E-N-T. This is a very broad topic, so let's just jump right in. Why don't we get started with everyone's favorite eye emergencies? So first, let's go over the basics as it pertains to us emergency medicine mortals. Um, If a patient comes in with an eye complaint, always check visual acuity as this is one of the vital signs of the eye. Don't forget visual fields or ocular muscle motility. Check the surrounding structures as well as under the eyelids and get comfortable with how and when to use your tools such as the woods lamp, slit lamp, and the tona pen slash eye care for whatever you decide to do to check for pressures. Don't forget the retina is also part of the eye and get comfortable with the fundoscopic exam if you wish. Let's start with the diagnosis and management of the red eye. This differential is extensive, but the important differentiating factors are the presence or absence of pain, itching, photophobia, systemic symptoms, discharge, injections, and so forth. Let's go over a few of the common and scary causes of the red eye. Uh, First, there's preceptal and orbital cellulitis. And the proper diagnosis of these is paramount because not only do they have different treatments, but they also have drastically different sequelae. Um, They can have similar presentations, so to truly differentiate between them, a CT scan is sometimes needed. Um, So with preceptal cellulitis, otherwise known as periorbital, what you need to know is that it's an infection of the eyelids and periorbital structures. Usually it's found in kids, um, and it's associated with URI symptoms, and This can be treated in the outpatient setting, usually with amoxicillin clavulanate or first-gen cephalosporin, if properly diagnosed. The eye itself is not involved, so visual acuity, pupillary response should be preserved, and the patient should be able to move their eye without pain. In regards to orbital cellulitis, or otherwise known as post-septal, it is more serious, requires hospitalization, and IV antibiotics. This infection spreads from paranasal sinuses, and as such can affect the deeper structures of the orbit, leading to proptosis, abnormal pupillary response, decreased visual acuity, and pain with eye movement. It is important to get a CT scan to confirm and treat with broad-spectrum antibiotics for both anaerobes and aerobes. Important to note that if cranial nerves 3, 4, and 6 are involved, consider a cavernous sinus thrombosis and you may need to perform the dreaded lateral canthotomy if intraocular pressure is elevated or optic neuropathy is present. Patients can die from this, so please take it seriously. Moving on to lid pathologies, um, there are just the main three you gotta worry about. So there is the sty, the chalazion, and blepharitis. Continuing on with the red eye theme, let's talk about conjunctivitis. The important thing to do here is to sort out between bacterial infection or viral, and this, without aggressive treatment, may result in vision loss. For bacterial conjunctivitis, symptoms involve painless unilateral or bilateral mucopurulent discharge with adherence of eyelids upon awakening. Think staph, strep, perform a fluorescein stain, and treat with topical antibiotics. For contact lens wearers, think pseudomonas and treat accordingly. For viral conjunctivitis, this is generally bilateral Um, The most common cause is adenovirus, uh, but can be caused by herpes simplex and herpes zoster, which can lead to corneal scarring and loss of vision. Uh, Viral conjunctivitis is very contagious, so just please instruct your patient to wash their hands 
um, and treat with cold compresses and artificial tears. It can take one to three weeks to resolve. A severe form, which you got to watch out for, is called epidemic keratoconjunctivitis. This can lead to systemic symptoms and similar physical exam findings, but they can have photophobia and foreign body sensation with marked eye redness. Lastly, we have allergic conjunctivitis, which has watery discharge, redness, and itching. Let's move from the conjunctiva to pathology of the cornea. Let's start with herpes simplex keratoconjunctivitis. Patients may give a history of genital or oral herpes and complain of photophobia, eye redness, and decreased vision. They may have herpetic eruptions around the eye. Look for dendrite of herpes with fluorescein staining, and they may also have the classic geographic ulcer. For lid involvement, treat with oral acyclovir. For just conjunctival involvement, please treat with topical trifluoridine. And you can give patients erythromycin drops to prevent secondary bacterial infection. No topical steroids here, and refer to Optho in 24 to 48 hours. Next is herpes zoster ophthalmicus. This is shingles involving the first division of the trigeminal nerve. The rash usually does not cross midline. Um, you may be familiar with Hutchinson's sign, which is involvement at the tip of the nose, and this is strongly suggestive of ocular involvement. Symptoms include fever, pain, malaise, blurred vision. Consider an immunocompromised state if the patient is less than 40 years old. For the skin, treat with cool compresses and bacitracin. The eye is treated with erythromycin drops and consider IV acyclovir for serious infections. Don't forget about corneal ulcers. For these, treat with topical antibiotics and cycloplegic drops for pain with accompanying iritis. And UV keratitis, otherwise known as snow blindness, uh, ask about a history of welding, um, treat with topical antibiotics and oral analgesics and consider patching both eyes. Healing usually occurs on its own in one to two days. Now with iritis and uveitis, uh, this is inflammation of the anterior segment of the uveal tract. This is not a true emergency, but requires opto follow-up. Photophobia is usually present and consensual photophobia is highly suggestive of iritis. Do a slit lamp exam and use cycloplegic drops to paralyze the muscles of the eye, which helps decrease pain. Refer to ophthalmology in one to two days. Now, if a patient comes in with a hypopion, this is just pus in the anterior chamber of the eye, um, give them antibiotics. The risk with this is development of endophthalmitis, which is an infection of the deeper structures of the eye. The eye looks very angry. Uh, the most common cause is surgery. Give the patient intraocular as well as systemic antibiotics. Moving a little more posterior in the eye, we can get vitreous detachment and hemorrhage. This is the sudden painless loss of vision with the appearance of black spots and floaters with eye movement. This is commonly caused by diabetes. Um, and make sure you do an ocular ultrasound, check the patient's INR, and consult with ophthalmology. Now let's switch it up a little bit with eye trauma. Um, make sure you check for conjunctival abrasions, lacerations, globe perforations, and foreign bodies. In regards to corneal abrasions, uh, these heal spontaneously, so the goal is to treat pain and prevent infection. Consider patching the eye. Uh, don't patch an abrasion if it's from a fingernail, vegetable matter, or a contact lens because your concern is infection. So with retinal detachment, patients usually will say they see flashes of light, floaters, and it feels like a curtain is being drawn down on their vision. 
It's painless, uh, perform an ocular ultrasound, and in, this is an emergent ophthalmology consult. With blunt eye trauma, consider blowout fractures, and you typically can see the orbital floor fracture where they, have the, they can't look up. Um, refer to ophthalmology for this. And you can also find medial wall fractures where the eye structures protrude into the ethmoid sinus. For that, you may see epistaxis. Um, along with blunt trauma, you can see a hyphema, which is blood in the anterior chamber. These can be traumatic as well as spontaneous. Hyphemas should be evaluated by ophthalmology in the emergency department. One of the feared complications of ocular trauma is a ruptured globe. Um, any projectile has the potential to rupture the globe. And if this occurs, make sure you cover the eye with a shield and consult ophthalmology without any manipulation of the eye. Uh, do not check intraocular pressure for this because if you do, the eye's contents can actually extrude outside of the globe. And for these, give tetanus and antibiotics. If you need to, perform a lateral canthotomy to reduce intraocular pressure and restore retinal artery blood flow. Consider this if there's a retrobulbar hemorrhage. For chemical ocular injury, the most important thing to know is that normal pH of the eye is 7.4. Now, whether or not it's alkali or acid, make sure you irrigate, 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 and check the pH until it is neutral for 30 minutes since the last irrigation. Now let's discuss glaucoma, which is an increase in the intraocular pressure. There are two main flavors that we worry about in the emergency department. The first being open angle, which is chronic. Uh, and this oft often involves a referral to ophthalmology and you can, the goal is to decrease aqueous production and increase flow of the aqueous humor. The second more serious version of glaucoma that we worry about is acute angle closure glaucoma. The eye is painful, the vision is lost, and there's a headache, nausea, halos, uh, the eye is injected, it, and the pupil is fixed and mid-dilated. Typically, the intraocular pressure is between 40 to 70. This is an emergent opto-referral. You can give topical and systemic medications to decrease aqueous humor production, as well as increase the flow of the humor. Another cause of painful vision loss is optic neuritis. This is often a sudden loss of vision and involves the color vision most commonly. Um, when you see this, think multiple sclerosis. Finishing up with painless loss of vision, we have the central retinal artery occlusion. This is like a stroke of the eye. Check for stroke risk factors. On fundoscopy, we'll see a pale retina. To treat this, uh, do globe massage, give acetazolamide, and consider IR with interarterial TPA. Central retinal vein occlusion is like a DVT of the eye, and if you see blood and thunder on fundoscopy, consider this. Uh, lower the intraocular pressure, give steroids, and consider anticoagulation. Switching gears a little bit, let's discuss the ear. Um, foreign bodies are a very common cause of emergency department visits. Briefly, just worry about the button batteries. Those are an emergency. As always, there are many ways to remove foreign bodies. Choose what's best. Um, consider cerumen impaction if a patient has conductive hearing loss, and there's many ways to remove that. If you see a perforated tympanic membrane, there are many causes, but just know that the patient should not have any water in their ear until closure, and they heal on their own, but the large ones may need closure. In regards to otitis media, this is an infection of the middle ear, can be viral or, or bacterial. Um, the TM is erythematous and immobile. 
Um, but just consider the main complication is mastoiditis. For this, you give IV antibiotics. Um, moving out of the ear a little bit, you get otitis externa and this inflammation of the ear canal. And this is swimmer's ear. Treat with topical drops and beware of malignant otitis externa, which can be a necrotizing infection. And lastly, with the ear, we have vertigo. And this is when the room is spinning. Um, with patients coming in with this, the most important thing to do is to differentiate between peripheral causes and central causes. Peripheral causes being Meniere's labyrinthitis. Make sure you do a thorough neuro exam. Uh, in peripheral, the neuro exam is normal. And with a central vertigo, the neuro exam may not be normal. And let's not forget the Hintz exam for this. Moving on to the nose and the sinuses. Um, epistaxis, which is nose bleeding, uh, make sure you differentiate between the anterior and posterior bleeds. Um, address airway compromise, and there are many ways to treat this, so get comfortable and figure out what's best for you. If a patient comes in with facial trauma, don't forget to check for septal hematomas. Um, make sure you incise and drain them urgently to avoid necrosis of the cartilage. If a patient comes in with uh, rhinosinusitis, just know that treatment should be reserved for patients with purulent nasal secretions and severe symptoms for at least seven days. Let's briefly discuss oral and dental emergencies. Uh, when you're examining the mouth, don't forget to look under the tongue, check the cheeks and the roof of the mouth. Oral facial pain has a massive differential, so think broadly from the teeth to infections to malignancies, trauma, and neurologic causes. Most dental pain involves referral to a dentist, but you can block pain with local analgesia. Um, treat the gingival and periodontal abscesses with incision and drainage. Give antibiotics and pain relief. In regards to dental fractures, just remember the LS classes one through three. If you see pink and punctate bleeding, it is type three. For tooth avulsions, this is a true dental emergency. Handle the tooth by the crown, rinse it off, do not scrub the root, and try to re-implant it. If implantation is not possible at that time, place into special solutions such as Hank's solution or milk. Moving back in the mouth a bit, we'll get to pharyngitis and tonsillitis. Um, with viral, you'll see vesicular or petechial pattern on the soft palate, usually associated with rhinorrhea. This will resolve in two to four weeks. And do not forget about mono and all of the education you need to give to the patient. With bacterial pharyngitis, uh, consider group A beta hemolytic strep. Think of the Centaur criteria, treat with penicillin to prevent rheumatic fever. Peritonsillar abscesses, uh, do a needle aspiration, but very carefully, no more than one centimeter deep as to not hit the internal carotid artery and treat with antibiotics. Epiglottitis, this can occur in adults too, so consider this. When a patient has worsening dysphagia, odynophagia, and dyspnea, as well as fever, neck tenderness, and stridor. Diagnosis is made with radiographs or transnasal fiber optic laryngoscopy. Um, so with this, the symptoms are positional and can be worse with laying down. So do not send patient to a CT scanner. Be prepared to establish a definitive airway. Treat with humidified O2, IV hydration, and IV antibiotics, as well as monitoring for hemodynamics. Moving even farther back in the mouth, we have retropharyngeal abscesses. Uh, make sure you get a CT with contrast, have a definitive airway ready, and ENT consultation, give antibiotics and supportive care. In patients who have an odontogenic abscess, always consider a deeper infection, 
have materials ready for airway and treat with broad-spectrum antibiotics, complications include Ludwig's angina. Lastly, uh, we'll discuss post-tonsillectomy bleeding. Um, for these, bleeding can occur up to 10 days after the procedure. Keep the patient NPO and have them sit upright and place direct pressure with gauze moistened with thrombin or lidocaine with epinephrine. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. If you've made it this far, thanks for bearing with me. I know this was a lot. Um, if you have questions or comments, let me know. And thanks a lot.